from WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, constitutional law professor Corey Brechneider joins me to discuss the 14th Amendment and birthright citizenship. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the Public Morality. Section 1 of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution reads, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. In a recent interview with Axios, President Donald Trump said he wants to end birthright citizenship by way of executive order, which most legal scholars believe is a violation of the 14th Amendment Citizenship Clause. The President's proposed actions raises the question whether the quote, jurisdiction thereof portion of the text supersedes the, quote, all persons born or naturalized in the United States portion of the text. To understand the 14th Amendment and whether it protects birthright citizenship, we welcome Corey Brechneider to the public morality. Brechneider is a professor of political science and constitutional law at Brown University. He is author of the recent book, The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for future presidents. We taped this interview with Professor Brett Schneider on Tuesday, November 6th. Professor Corey Brett Schneider, welcome to the Public Morality. Uh, pleasure to be here, Byron. I'm really looking forward to this important conversation on a very important day, Election Day. Yeah. Well, let's begin by having you offer a distillation of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, its history, its context, and and if you if you wouldn't mind... Did it change the American landscape upon its ratification? Yeah, that's uh, a great first question, because it was uh, not just a change. I would say it was a shift from a, from a uh, society and a uh, constitution that you know, was uh, guaranteeing the right of slavery to one that uh, moved not just to end slavery in the 13th Amendment, but in the 14th Amendment to guarantee Equality, and that's really what it's, those provisions are about. The uh, the amendments, specifically, all three of them are really a repudiation of the Dred Scott case, uh, which uh, before the Civil War held uh, that not only did African Americans, uh, uh, and specifically this uh, former enslaved person, this uh, this person enslaved uh, Dred Scott, who had been uh, in free territory. Uh, not only did it not vindicate his rights, but it said something very radical, which is that Dred Scott was not a person under the Constitution. So what these three amendments do, the 13th Amendment ending uh, slavery, the 14th Amendment guaranteeing equal protection of law, due process, and also, as we'll talk about in depth, birth, birthright citizenship, and the 15th Amendment guaranteeing the equal right to vote, regardless of race, what those 
three amendments did was uh, really transform the Constitution from uh, a one that was uh, compatible with uh, a, a society of subordination and two classes of people to the idea that we're all equal at birth. So it was uh, the most important, I would say, transformation of the Constitution in American history. Uh, following up on that, could you explain the doctrine uh, of incorporation and how the 14th Amendment contributes to that? Sure. Uh, the 14th Amendment uh, specifically uh, contains guarantees of equal protection of law, due process of law, and also uh, this third thing that we'll talk about, the idea that anybody born in the United States is a citizen. Uh, and the other thing that it did is because it used this language of no state shall, is it also, uh, and this was a fundamental part of it, not only guaranteed those uh, three things regardless of which state you lived in, but it took the entire Bill of Rights and its most fundamental aspects, at least, and uh, applied it, too, to say that it wasn't just a limit on the federal government as it was before the 14th Amendment was passed, but it, it incorporated all of the rights of the Bill of Rights and said that, for instance, the right of free speech, the right of uh, free exercise, the right to not have an established religion in the society, that all of those uh, guarantees also were limits on state and local government. So uh, that, that uh, I guess, is a fourth fundamental thing that the amendment did that, um, that really transformed the, not just the society, but the Constitution itself. So, so in that context, was it an unintentional consequence, given your, your definition of incorporation, was it, mm -hmm. un, was it an unintended consequence that the 14th Amendment would thereby weaken some of the power and federalism associated with the 10th Amendment? Um, I think that it, uh, it changed the meaning of the 10th Amendment, I guess is how I would put it. And uh, I have um, uh, in, in, in my book, The Oath in the Office, an argument for why the 10th Amendment still matters in the context of the 14th Amendment. So let me say what I mean. Um, uh, this, the 14th Amendment cuts through states' rights, certainly, and and suggests that in areas like civil rights, that the local government or states don't have the ability to violate any one person's civil rights. It's a guarantee against all government. Uh, but it doesn't disappear entirely, and that's very important, actually, at this point in history. So in the book, I talk about Miguel Marquez, who in California is leading the charge in, in Santa, Santa Clara County uh, against ICE. And his argument is that when the federal government is, is violating our rights, that the states and localities don't have to cooperate. And um, so he's saying that, for instance, when ICE says we have to hold um, uh, undocumented people who are suspected of being undocumented for parking tickets, hold them for 48 hours until ICE can come and pick them up and deport them, he says, look, there's a part of the Tenth Amendment that remains, and that gives us the power uh, to ourselves guarantee civil rights against the federal government when it's the federal government uh, uh, threatening rights. So it doesn't disappear, the Tenth Amendment. It's not like it's a repeal of it, but it, 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 it changes it so that it uh, has to be understood as um, not an uh, opposition to civil rights, but uh, gives the state still roles in, in guaranteeing it and resisting the federal government in areas that, that wouldn't themselves be civil rights violations. So, you know, in your last answer, you, you just paused me to think. Um, and yeah. I, and I, I tend to get in trouble when I think, so <laughs> <laughs> So you have to bear, you have to bear with me. Um, okay. The language in Section 1 uh, is, is, is relatively simplistic on its surface. Yeah. Uh, For a reason, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, and there, and there has, has there been a, an, an 
an amendment in your view that was more responsible for that sort of fundamental change you talked about earlier in that we might say before the 14th Amendment, we were like this. After the 14th Amendment, we became this. Is there any other amendment that has Mm. that distinction? Yeah, that's a a great question. I would say it's unrivaled. Uh, There's so much packed into uh, this short, uh, especially Section 1, the guarantees of due process uh, against local, not just the federal government, and the transformation that we just discussed that that entailed. The, The idea of equality under law, regardless of race or uh, ethnicity or national origin that's enshrined in the Equal Protection Clause, uh, and then the Birthright Citizenship Clause, really solidifying the idea that we're equal under law. There, there's nothing like that because it's not just the specific provisions, although th- that's a big part of it, or you know there are various aspects of due process or equal protection, but it is that as a whole, it really stands for a different idea that that certainly was not present uh, at the at the founding. Uh, at the founding, there were of course uh, participants who were uh, slave owners, and they uh, wound up um, uh, for the worse in enshrining a constitution that essentially protected uh, slavery. There's a disagreement about how much or for how long, but certainly it put off discussion of the slave trade uh, uh, until the very early 19th century, and that itself was a, a punt, I would say, at best on the, on the, the question. So, in my view, you move from a slave constitution to one that really guarantees equality and there is no more dramatic change than a society that's going from one protecting slavery to one that uh, not only ends it but guarantees uh, equality for all. Well, since you mentioned the founding, I mean, I, I, I realize the Declaration of Independence is not a governing document, but yeah. it, but it sort of hinges on the ethos of liberty and equality. Right. Sure. So, so does the Fourteenth Amendment actually put the ethos of the Declaration into the Constitution? I think that's a beautiful way to put it. And in, in my book, I end. Um, and throughout the book, uh, in the chapter on equal protection, uh, I say that one of the true heroes of our constitutional tradition is Frederick Douglass, and that was his way of thinking about it, that uh, it wasn't that the Constitution itself had bad values. It was that uh, they basically, had the framers and those over time, just failed to uh, live up to the ideal that was enshrined in the Declaration of uh, Equality. And, and you know, eventually, after the Civil War, that, that is... Uh, realized at least in law and codified in, in the 14th Amendment, exactly as you said. So uh, there were some who thought that the slave constitution was a pact for the devil and needed to be abandoned completely. And there were others like Douglas who thought, you know, it certainly is a, you know, he was a fierce opponent of Dred Scott and himself a former enslaved person, a fierce opponent of slavery. But he thought that the thing that we need to do is to is to save this thing and to see the good values and pull them out more clearly, change the structure of the document. And, um, you know, I think that's that's a nice way to see it. The, uh, the document is transformed by the 14th Amendment, but it also is realizing values that were there uh, from the from the framing. Uh, the framers were not great at seeing uh, the radical implications of that idea of equality. And if they really un- understood it, I think they would have not done what they did uh, in the 18th century. Uh, but some of it might have been weakness of will, you know, that they just were worried about um, about really seeing the radical implications of the, of the Declaration. And so it, it took us a war to, to do that. But uh, the culmination of that war and these three amendments was a fundamental transformation. Of course, we're still at a point in society uh, and have been for a long time uh, where we haven't realized those ideals, and it's much more radical than where we are in 
to me, I'm with Frederick Douglass. I think we need to to not abandon the Constitution, but but make it uh, make us live up to its ideals more clearly. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with uh, Professor Corey Brettschneider. Uh, Professor Brettschneider is a constitutional law professor and a political scientist at Brown University, and he's also the author of the new book, The Oath of Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents. Professor Brettschneider, when you hear uh, the president say he could eliminate birthright citizenship by executive fiat, what goes through your mind? Uh, I think that he's wrong, and I want to see reporters who are reporting on it report it as a, a, a view that's false. Uh, uh, it isn't. I don't think there is um, there is a serious question about it, uh, and I'll say why. Um, certainly, when it comes to uh, the ability to do this through executive order, um, I think there is almost complete consensus among scholars that he can't do that. There are a couple of scholars who say he can do it through legislation, and there are proposals in the uh, in the Congress to do that. But I there, too, strongly think that is a, a, a very small minority view and that it's absolutely incorrect. And uh, we need to look at a variety of sources. The most obvious is the text, which is really plain of de- as day, uh, that talks about a bright-line rule that if you are born in the United States, you are a citizen, full stop. Now, I'll talk about the, the small exceptions that are in there uh, for ambassadors, uh, and the debate uh, in the 19th century about Native Americans uh, and and those who have uh, are invading forces, uh, but those small exceptions don't take away from the bright line rule. And the place where you see that language most clearly is in the Supreme Court's case, uh, uh, Wong Kim Ark, which uh, uses language like the language that I just described to uh, explain why, even though at the time I hated minority. Uh, uh, Chinese nationals, uh, that uh, a child born to that hated minority at the time was still a citizen. And, you know, this wasn't a period of, of tolerance. It was terrible racial prejudice towards Chinese nationals. There was a Chinese Exclusion Act that barred their entry into the country that had been passed since that um, Wang Kim Ark had been born. Uh, but when he uh, says, you know, I have a, a right to come back to this country because I am a citizen, even uh, at such a bigoted time, the Supreme Court of the United States says, you know what, we can read. We read that amendment, and absolutely, you, you can come back in. So I think uh, this 19th century case, the language of the Constitution, and then I don't want to leave out the most important thing, which are the values that we've been talking about, the idea that we are equal at birth. All those three things make it very clear that um, uh, there is a right to be a citizen. You are a citizen if you are born here. I want, I want to go back to, to part of your last answer. Sure. When, you, when you talked about the the, the the president could um, operate through legislation, through the legislative body, through legislation. Yeah. Um, I've watched Schoolhouse Rock. Uh, I don't think he can do it. By the way, I, I was going to more plausible. Th- th- that's the that's the, that's yeah. the question. How do you how yeah. do you, how do you through legislation amend something to the United States Constitution? Uh, override you something? Yeah. No, I don't think that you can. I just think that there is you know there are different levels of disagreement. Almost nobody thinks. Even people who are sympathetic to his broad constitutional arguments don't think that he can do this through executive order. My worry is they'll try to do it through legislation. Now, I don't think that will work either, because it's clearly, for the reasons I just gave, unconstitutional. And either an executive order or a piece of legislation contrary to the Constitution needs to be struck down by the Supreme Court. But there are more people, I would say, more scholars, too, in particular 
who who argue that through legislation that he could do it. And those people are uh, Roger Smith and uh, uh, Professor Schuck from uh, from Yale. Uh, another park, a popular argument, um, which is why we sort of I wanted to lay the foundation to mm. some, some degree to the Fourteenth Amendment, was that uh, another popular argument you hear is the Fourteenth Amendment was part of the Reconstruction Amendments, which was about slavery and not about relegating uh, the citizens of those born to parents who were not citizens. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. do you respond to that argument? Well, I mean, we have a Supreme Court case that is good law. And, you know, the way that lawyers and constitutional law works is you don't just make it up. You look at the text and you look at what the case law says. And they they responded to that very elegantly, actually, in the case. They said, yes, of course, the primary purpose of the amendments was to end slavery and to grant um, former slaves and their children uh, equal citizenship. And that was the primary purpose. But the framers considered that, you know, they had the option of writing this thing in a way that was only about that. They could have written a narrow amendment. You know, they knew how to draft, and you could have drafted an amendment that really addressed the evil of slavery only and the rights of African Americans, and they chose not to. They wrote an amendment that is uh, much broader than that, that's a bright-line rule. And that's why in Wong Kim Ark, they just reject the argument that this is only about uh, African Americans. They say it's about everybody. And when you do constitutional law, you know, I've given you my approach, which involves cases and the principles and the text. But for some conservatives called originalists, uh, they only look at the text. And uh, so if you're a conservative making this argument, I think it's even easier, probably, because you can just uh, read the text. It's clear. Well, you know, it's interesting because, you, you know, when you look at the, the 13th Amendment is real clear. It's, abo- right. it's, it's abolishing slavery. Right. The 15th Amendment is real clear that it's providing at least black men the franchise. Right. Uh, but the 14th Amendment says all. I mean, so I mean, you. Yeah. So it's, it's sandwiched in between two amendments that are really, really clear. So it's almost right. so. So what I hear you saying is you almost have to make an implied assumption to what you wanted to say to reach that conclusion that is just about slavery. They knew what they were doing, and uh, they used very clear language, and they could have made it narrow, as you said, but they chose not to. They had a, a very broad uh, set of principle that they put in there, the Equal Protection Clause, that we now have a whole body of Supreme Court law uh, that we rely on. And then they also added another broad rule uh, about, about about birth. And, you know, that there was the same idea going on there. And it's, uh, you know, I would say my favorite amendment is extremely elegant. It's broad. It enshrines the values of the Declaration of Independence in a way that no other amendment did. And it's a travesty that this president wants to try to read it in a way that that is not consistent. I can say more about what his argument is and the argument of those uh, who who uh, support it. But I, I think it's uh, fallacious. Now, now uh, Wong was, what, 1890 something? Uh-huh. Yep. OK. Um, is this still applicable? Yes. Oh, absolutely. The way that uh, Supreme Court case law works is that uh, precedent of the Supreme Court remains until it's overturned. And nobody, no court has ever seriously considered overturning that rule and that interpretation, uh, partly because it's so obviously true that the bright line rule uh, exists. Now, uh, they are making an argument which a court has never made, the president and his defenders, which is that um, the, the language that talks about being born within the jurisdiction of the United States and within the jurisdiction, they say, does not include uh, undocumented people. And they also point out that um, there was no uh, uh, ruling specifically on undocumented people because that category didn't, didn't exist. 
Now, in my view, uh, they laid out some very clear exceptions in, in the case law, Native Americans. Um, uh, they also made clear that ambassadors' uh, children were not uh, to be given citizenship. Because notice, uh, in the case of uh, uh, Native Americans, they weren't subject to taxation. That was the argument of, a, of an earlier case uh, uh, about jurisdiction. And ambassadors uh, have all sorts of independence uh, from the law that... Uh, that um, that others don't. So jurisdiction just means what it sounds like, and they try to create it into, into a completely different uh, meaning, which is uh, jurisdiction in the sense of um, uh, having loyalty to the United States or uh, having more specifically what they call allegiance jurisdiction, that you uh, would show allegiance to, uh, to the country through some sort of uh, 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 display of loyalty. And I, there's no support in that, uh, for that in the cases that I've read in the amendment itself. Uh, they have a few fragments from debates um, concerning uh, uh, 19th century legislative debates. But, but no, I don't, I don't see a source of law that guarantees that, that idea. Well, one of the things, I mean, I'm certainly not a legal scholar and, and, mm. don't, and don't even pretend to be one um, and pontificate as such. But I, I did read, you know, the uh, Wong opinion. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but there was very little about the status of Wong's parents. Right. It, 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 the emphasis was where he was born. Yeah, and I think you're identifying... Um, a really crucial mistake and uh, move that's being made in the defenders of this policy because their emphasis is on what the parents did or didn't do. And that's not the emphasis of the amendment or the emphasis of the case. The case is about the rights of the child and the right of people born in the United States within the territory. And so to shift the plain meaning from being about uh, the rights of the child to being about the obligations or duties of the parents, I I think is, a you know, just a mistake. Um, uh, so yes, <laughs> you're you're not being uh, you're, you're being too modest. You, you've identified a central flaw, I think, in their argument. Well, uh, as I always tell my friends, the only the only bar I've passed is my local tavern. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my answer. And I'm sticking to it. Uh, I love it. Why isn't uh, Elk versus Wilkins a viable defense against birthright citizenship? And, and, and please take the time to explain Elk versus Wilkins. Sure. I mean, that's the exception. There are, as I said, it is a bright-line rule, but with, with exceptions. And uh, the exceptions include this weird invading armies category, which I don't see as being relevant, the uh, category of ambassadors, which is the, the point of the jurisdiction language. And then there was a question uh, before Wong Kim Ark, uh, in the Elk case, about whether or not Native Americans uh, were subject uh, to the jurisdiction of the United States or, or were citizens. And in that uh, case, uh, 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 a person born uh, uh, to tribal Native Americans on Native American land uh, sued for citizenship. And the court did rule, now, um, emphasizing in particular, and this is why I think it, the jurisdiction language is, is pretty clear what it means there, that Native Americans weren't subject to tax in the way that non-Native Americans were. Uh, and then they use that logic of not being subject to tax to suggest that actually in this particular case that uh, this Native American was not, um, not actually a, uh, uh, not a, uh, entitled to citizenship. Huh. And so to me, you know, that's a specific case that's about um, the odd 
uh, unique status, I would say, of Native Americans, that they really inhabit a separate nation within the nation, and that the jurisdiction, the rules are just unique to Native Americans, very different than they are with anyone else. But in the case of undocumented people, to me, you know, they are clearly subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. If an undocumented person commits a crime, they can be arrested. And it would be absurd to suggest otherwise. So the, the meaning is clearly, I think, includes them. I'm going back to something you touched on previously. Is this just not a rehashing of the longstanding originalist versus living constitution argument? Uh, that's a good question as well. But no, I, I don't think it is at all. I think the originalist stance and uh, the frankly, the, the serious thinkers in the originalist tradition uh, uh, have said this, uh, including uh, the brilliant judge Michael McConnell, uh, professor at, at Stanford Law School. Uh, he uh, and others have made clear that the plain language governs here. And for an originalist, what matters is not the intent, but the meaning of the language of, of the provision at issue at the time it was enacted and ratified. And the meaning of that amendment, as Wang Kim Ark makes clear, is, is that if you're born here, you're a citizen, full stop. So I don't think it's a, a normal debate where, uh, or like so many of our contemporary controversies, well, we could talk about them next time we, we chat, where there really is a division between two very different ideas of the Constitution, two different visions. This isn't like that. This is a, a one in which uh, scholars from across the, the interpretive spectrum agree. Uh, you know, if you're born here, you're a citizen, full stop. And, you know, what it requires, this strange argument that undocumented people, I mean, just to be clear, they think, okay, you don't have to be a citizen to have your child be a citizen. They think that uh, if you have a green card, for instance, your child is a citizen. But their argument is that if you're an undocumented person and you're, you have a child in the United States, that child is not a uh, citizen, because you are not subject to the jurisdiction of the United States as a as an undocumented person, uh, and I think there, you know, from that conservative traditional idea of read the text, be a textualist, uh, that's obviously false. I mean, if you follow that line of thinking, would it not suggest that John McCain should not have been allowed to run for president of the United States? If you follow that line of thinking, because he was born in Panama. Yeah, I mean, there is this uh, clause that remains, which is that the president has to be born or um, or naturalized. So I think the, I don't know. I mean, there was that controversy, but I think that it's pretty clear right. that 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 he he could run. Yeah, and yeah, and, yeah. No, I'm just saying, if you follow that 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 type of thinking, I, I thought right. I had no problem with him. You know, thinking he right, should right, run. Right, right, right. Um, you know, one of the things that, that, that fascinates me about the Constitution, and I want to get your take on this mm. more broadly is that if, if one takes the Constitution seriously, does there come a point to where whatever your philosophical underpinnings are, let's, let's, say, let, let's say if you're philosophically liberal, mm -hmm. is there a point to where the Constitution makes you, forces you, if you take it seriously, to contradict your philosophical underpinnings? Sure. I think, uh, you know, the mo most serious interpretations have these moments where what the Constitution requires and what I personally would require as a result of my own morality are, are just separate things. Uh, so take the abortion question. Uh, the question there is about whether or not the fetus is recognized as a constitutional person, not about my religious or personal beliefs about the fetus or whether I uh, would or want my, a family member to have 
an abortion. It's about what the Constitution recognizes or doesn't recognize, and that logic is independent. Uh, so, you know, I'm a supporter of universal health care, but I don't think that the Constitution guarantees that uh, right. That's another example. So uh, originalists could do that, too. And I think most defenders of a variety of views uh, recognize there'll be moments where personal morality and, and the law uh, differs. So I would say here, too, you know, this isn't about whether or not you think that we should have a more restrictive immigration policy. It's about the meaning of the amendment, and your views, uh, pro or con on that, are irrelevant to the plain fact that the amendment says what it says. And, um, you know, there, I'm trying to, you know, what I really appreciate about this conversation is we're trying to give the best reading of, of Trump's defense of Trump. And I guess another thing they can say is, well, you know, undocumented people didn't exist back then, so they're not covered. That's one thing that, that's sometimes said. But that also seems like a faulty view of interpretation, because it would require the drafters of the 14th Amendment to sort of imagine all future scenarios. And I think what originalism and living constitutionalism, or as I talk about a value-based reading, what all three approaches share is the idea that the Constitution lays down a set of, of rules and, and, and sometimes principles, and that applies regardless of whether or not the framers intended or could even foresee a variety of different circumstances. As a legal scholar, though, do, 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 do you worry that things are put out in the public discourse that most um, uh, legal scholars, regardless of um, their philosophical underpinnings, tend to agree? I mean, like we talked about the 14th mm -hmm. Amendment, all means all. I mean, for most legal scholars, this is not a debate, but do you worry right. when these things get entered into the public discourse and, mm. and they're presented as though there's, a, there's two different possibilities here. Does that concern you? Yes, I think that, um, you know, I'm, I'm very critical and, and not happy about the Axios interview with President Trump, because the setup suggested that there are some people who say that you can do this. And what that did is sort of put a two-sidedism uh, in a place where it really doesn't belong. And my worry is that Trump's success is that entering into the public discourse, the idea that this is even an option that that's a serious erosion of democratic norms and of uh, the guarantees of the Constitution. And so, I, you know, I think they did a terrible disservice to us in this HBO -ish, uh, interview by, by setting it up as a two-sides issue. Yeah. Sort of like climate change. That, 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 that's, yes. That's my, yes, that's my bias. Nice <laughs> yeah, very uh, nice. When the time we have remaining, I want to turn our attention briefly to your latest offering, uh, the Oath of Office, a guy— uh, The Oath and the Office. The Oath and the Office. I want to make sure people can Google it. It's the oath and the office. I'm, I'm, <laughs> well, you know what's really scary? I'm, yeah. I'm actually looking at it right now. <laughs> oh, and I'm looking okay. at oath and the office. Yeah. And I, and I, I just put of in there. So that, You're just used to saying it that way. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, the, yeah, I'm the oath of office. The oath and the office, a guide Thanks. to the Constitution for Future Presidents. Though the, the title suggests that it could be a primer uh, for anyone holding presidential ambitions, but it's much more, and I'd like to have you talk about that, if you would. Yeah, uh, that's certainly the device, is what do you need to know about the Constitution to be president. And it's written in a way that would appeal um, uh, uh, to somebody who's considering running for office one day. Um, um, but most importantly, it's really not just that. It's a guide for voters. Uh, we're all going to vote for a president uh, in not too long. Uh, and the suggestion is really the next presidential election needs to be a referendum on the Constitution up or down. 
uh, and this president in particular, in the case that we're talking about, but also in many others, has shown a real disregard for the document and for the values. The job description of the president of the United States, the oath that the president takes, is to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, not just the country. So knowing the document is the job description, and those of us who are going to evaluate a president need to restore the Constitution to our number one question that we're going to ask about any candidate. Uh, is there a baseline that you would like to see if you were king for a day that we all sort of held for the Constitution, all, regardless of whether we're uh, professors at Brown University or just um, idiots on the radio talking, asking questions? Is there is there a certain baseline that you'd like to see all, all citizens have? For the I've done a lot of radio. i got to say this is uh, the furthest thing from idiocy <laughs> I've encountered, and I have encountered some. Uh, uh, yeah, I think this, you know, we got we have to all start with that basic principle that this Constitution rejected monarchy, it rejected aristocracy, it rejected the idea that who your parents are dictate who you are in this society. That was the why the war was fought. That was the meaning of the 14th Amendment and the wider values of the Constitution in all sorts of areas. So that idea of uh, equality at birth, regardless of who your parents are, that's, uh, to me, the central baseline that we all have to begin from. And and was it the present moment of what you've observed to say the last uh, 24 months or so, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that drove you to, uh, to write this text? Or was there something specific? We said, I've got to write this, this particular text at this moment. It, it was the campaign of Donald Trump, which repeatedly um, pledged to violate the Constitution. Think of the uh, proposal to torture the families of suspected terrorists, not just the suspected terrorists themselves. The threat to shut down all Muslim immigration, which was explicitly at that point about religion. Uh, those proposals and others seem to me to be a real assault on the document in the most grotesque way. And people were talking about all sorts of critiques of Trump, but they weren't talking about his assault on the Constitution. So I wrote a piece in Politico called Trump versus the Constitution. And when I started to think about how can I turn this into a book, I realized, you know, we don't just need uh, a, a critique of this president. This book is a critique of this president. I have no doubt you'll see it when you read it. Uh, but we also need to think more broadly about the office for the future and to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Uh, so that was the, the reason for the wider frame. Well, you know, it seems to me that so much of, of, of our discourse now, so if you, if you take that position, so much of our discourse is to assume you're against the, you know, the, the, the person. And what I hear you saying is, I'm concerned about the destruction of our democratic guardrails, because that's what the Constitution Absolutely. is. Absolutely. It is not just about the person. It's partly about that, but it's also about protecting the office and protecting our system of constitutional democracy. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to the next conversation where we can really elaborate on that. I think we did a great first conversation on uh, the birthright citizenship idea and its, its reflection of the broader values of equality under law. Uh, but there's a lot more to say, and uh, you're, you're really touching on uh, what I'm all about, which is uh, preserving, uh, protecting, and defending this constitutional democracy. Professor Corey Bretschneider, Brown University, thank you, sir, for joining me today on The Public Morality. That was Professor Corey Bretschneider. Stay tuned for my closing remarks.
And now for my closing remarks. As my conversation with Professor Bretschneider suggested, there is no amendment to the Constitution quite like that of the 14th. It changed the American landscape. Without the tragedy of slavery and the Civil War that rose because of it, it's possible the nation may not have possessed the fortitude to ratify the 14th Amendment in an attempt to bring the nation closer to the Declaration of Independence and its commitment to all citizens. The 14th Amendment demonstrates the difficulty in the application. The 14th, like no other amendment to the Constitution, in my view, bring the words of theologian Reinhold Niebuhr to life. Man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. The 14th Amendment was necessary. Equality was enshrined not only in the Declaration of Independence, but also in the Constitution. Before the 14th Amendment, along with the Civil War that gave rise to it, the United States was a plural noun. After, it became singular. This is the amendment that truly connects equality with liberty as the foundational blocks of the American experiment. After this point, pluralism becomes part of the American narrative and the destination spot for those yearning to breathe free. Though it required the country's origins include a compromise with evil as it pertained to human bondage, the 14th Amendment remains our constitutional North Star that guides us toward that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.